Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of Prairie Design Lab from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba. I'm Terry McLeod. Today we have the story of a talented, hardworking, and modest Winnipegger, Kelly Alvarez Doran, who has worked all over the world. Kelly is an associate director with the Swedish firm White Architecture and an adjunct professor at the Daniels School of Architecture at the University of Toronto. Kelly's practice and research has focused on the built environment's embodied carbon, and he's been recognized as a global leader in climate positive design. Prior to joining White Architecture, Kelly was a senior principal at Mass Design Group, which stands for Model of Architecture Serving Society, where he led their Rwanda office, overseeing the design and implementation of several mass projects in Rwanda, Kenya, and Congo. Kelly joins us today from London, UK. Hello, Kelly Alvarez-Doran. Welcome to Prairie Design Lab. Thank you, Terry. Before we talk about your global work, can we talk a little bit about your growing up in Winnipeg? Because I know that you're very connected to this place. What part of the city did you grow up in? Uh, St. James. And where did you go to school, high school and such? I went to uh, Westwood Collegiate High School, yeah. And what were your interests as a child? <laughs> Good question. I mean, it's funny, I've, I've reflected a lot on like what, what it meant growing up in the prairies and like what I draw on, I think, a little bit. I think I was fortunate to have uh, my mom grew up in a small town in Western Manitoba, uh, Bertle, which is about four hours away. And we spent oh, yes. I've been there. quite a bit of... Yep. quite a bit of time driving back and forth and, you know, spending summers up at my grandparents and on the farm and uh, um, getting used to doing a four hour drive that only had three turns in it, you know, um, and observing the landscape. And as a child, like kind of being somewhat bored by the landscape, but as I got older and began to understand it more, uh, I've reflected on it and really come to impress, like uh, be kind of amazed with how, uh, completely artificial the entire prairie landscape is and how it's you know completely man-made you know there's nothing you're not seeing anything natural when you're driving between say Winnipeg and Regina it's all been it was all the creation of uh you know of 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 our uh kind of impact on the earth and say even just the last century um which which was not ever immediately evident to me as a child I'd say uh you know the 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 general interests of you know, just being a kid and, and, you know, playing sports and things like that. But I also probably got into architecture. I attribute a lot of it as grew up and watched a lot of like things like this old house and just generally curious about how things go together and, and, you know, ultimately the way we construct our environment. Are you related by any chance to Lucinda Doran? She's my mother. Yeah. Of Prairie Studio Glass? Yeah, that's her. Yeah. The magnificent Prairie Studio Glass on Sargent. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Some design genes in there somewhere too. Yeah, she's. I mean, she's a obviously my yeah my family had uh, Prairie Stained Glass. I say she's the creative force behind it. My father and my brother uh, have also worked there. Your turn toward architecture was there some obvious point? Like you did a Bachelor of Environmental Studies at University of Manitoba. What even attracted you to that? Um, I guess it's funny. I, I came into the, the program. I was thinking I was actually going to do landscape architecture with my eye on becoming a golf course architect. That's when I started the program. That's what I thought I was going to be doing. Um, I was, you know, an avid golfer, still am. 
And I think I realized pretty early, I think the thing about the program that I reflect on and really thankful for is the first two years of the, of the undergraduate program, I don't know if it's still the case, but they put us all in the same room, all the people coming in that were thinking about becoming architects, landscape architects, interior designers, city planners. I think exposure to the range of all the disciplines was pretty instrumental in making me realize there's a lot more to the world than golf courses. And I was actually interested in, you know, far different things um, ultimately. So, you know, when the time came to declare the kind of major in that last year, I, I opted for architecture and I uh, haven't looked back. My good friend, Tyler, I went to high school with that also went through the program with me. He's like the, you know, he's like Winnipeg's golf course architect now. So he took the one job that was there and it <laughs> probably, it was a blessing in disguise. So, yeah. You've taught at a few schools, uh, Harvard Graduate School of Design. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the Bartlett in London. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, University of Waterloo as well. Yeah. And so what were you teaching at those schools? I'd been teaching architecture and landscape architecture. Oddly enough, I still found myself gravitating towards landscape, I think, as a scale for a while. But uh, I mean, after I graduated, did my master's at Toronto and, and shortly after taught as, a, as an adjunct at Waterloo for a year, which was great. And then I had been thinking about going into teaching. I mean, the other, I think I always had teaching in the back of my mind of things that I wanted to do. And um uh, opportunity came to go teach at Harvard in their landscape department and took that for a year and a half. It was interesting. And then came back to practice. Uh, that's kind of, that's how I met the folks in mass. They were in Boston and uh, got talking about moving to Africa, which is something my wife and I uh, wanted to do. And then we moved back to London a few years ago and yeah, opportunity at the Bartlett uh, appeared through their new program of landscape architecture as well. So I've been I've been a practice tutor at the Bartlett for a couple of years and, and now teaching uh, at the University of Toronto in their architecture department. So Renaissance teacher, perhaps. Yeah. When did climate positive design and architecture become a passion of yours? I mean, I was always, you know, concerned with the role of architecture, but I think that uh, working in Rwanda um, really opened my eyes to what architecture is in, in fact, and like what the implications of your decisions are because they're made more, proximate to you. Like you see the labor, you see the materials, you have to, you had to figure out where things were coming from. And so the socioeconomic impacts were kind of always front, front and center. And the more that we, as a company, we started looking at material provenance as a kind of broad way to think about it. Right. And that's always on that kind of socioeconomic part, but the environmental impact of material choices became more and more interesting and when we started working with uh, some folks at MIT at the time to begin to think about how to quantify the embodied carbon of our projects um, in Congo, specifically the small school, it became more and more obvious that this was the kind of frontier of, and, and frankly, the big blind spot of architects, uh, certainly since I've been in the industry or you know, since I started going to school 20 years ago. It was never part of my education, was certainly never something any of us really ever talked about until very recently. Once you come to terms with this, like the, the true impact of your decision-making, I think your understanding of, of your role and your responsibility fundamentally changes. It certainly did for me. Architecture is never neutral. It's from a climate perspective, people that claim to have sustainable buildings don't know what they're talking about. Like the act of building in and of itself is, a, is contributing to the climate crisis, you know, there's no getting around that uh, right now. Contemporary construction is not helping the cause, right? 
And I think like when you begin to see it that way, it, it becomes a far different um, conversation. And it's much more about mitigation or doing something differently or finding new ways to even conceive what, what building and buildings are and landscapes. You know, yeah. I think the whole mm-hmm. built environment, not to limit it to buildings, but yeah. I've decided to call this episode half, which is derived from a presentation that you did called Towards yeah, Half towards Designing Carbon Positive Future. What, what does the half refer to? So it's a pretty simple rubric or to think about, you know, the IPCC uh, had this, you know, towards the, you know, if we're going to save ourselves from Armageddon here, um, we need to have emissions by 2030 based on the 2018 uh, baseline. You know, this is when I kind of had this bit of a ha moment. You know, this was uh, two years ago. I actually remember the day it was when Greta Thunberg gave a, gave this speech in Paris and she was really pissed off. Yeah. And I remember just sitting there and maybe because I was also a new father kind of at that time, we we're just kind of watching this and being like, you know, I know what she's talking about. And, and for it, it hit an emotional chord in me in a way that hadn't resonated previously. And it was also the same day that I got an email from my regulatory body on like the future of practice about, you know, if you want to meet climate targets, you need to use more insulation in your building. And uh, when you realize the insulation that they were telling their, their membership to use, it was, uh, it was, I mean, frankly, I think it was um, professional negligence to even send something out because what they were telling people to do is the abs- absolute opposite of what we should be doing. Right. And I kind of got really pretty upset about it. And that's really where I've kind of started my evangelism around it. But the half thing is pretty simple. Like, you know, we, we think about getting to zero by 2050 and I think that pushes the deadline out too far, like, like so many things in human nature, like we can procrastinate. And I think the 2030 window, which I think a lot more people are starting to think about, we need to make radical changes by that date if we're going to have a chance. And that half by 2030, to me, is a kind of useful start, right? Like if we can figure out how to cut things in half this decade, we're going to be on, we'll be on the road to recovery here. So towards half is just like, what are we going to do when the eight and a half years we have left to, uh, to illustrate that change. What tilted you toward the study of carbon in, in all building materials? Because you've looked at carbon and its presence in everything from aluminum to glass to concrete. Well, these are what we built from, right? If you just look at the, the material palette of contemporary architecture, it, it is this uh, you know, it relies on a lot of concrete, a lot of reinforced concrete. Certainly in Canada, a lot of aluminum or aluminum, you know, based walling systems. Well, obviously a lot of steel and reinforced concrete or steel structures generally. This is the palette of global construction, right? And those three materials are you know, largely accountable for the emissions associated with the construction sector. And it goes on and on and on. I mean, once you go down this rabbit hole, it becomes a little overwhelming because the building is constituted of you know, hundreds of choices. And each one of those choices have repercussions from an emissions perspective. And I think understanding where things come from is important. I think the, the, the analogy here is like your food and what, what we've seen happen in food systems over the last decade and people being more conscious of the carbon footprint of your diet. And also I'd say even the, say the political realities of your diet, that people want to be a bit more farm to table or hundred mile diet or you name it what is the equivalent movement in architecture? And uh, that's what I'm, you know, kind of excited to think about. You just thought about, say, a cubic meter of concrete in your foundation or something like that, that 
you know, largely the embodied carbon has most to do in that kind of product stage. You know, there's a whole life cycle kind of a, a accounting of carbon, but for the most part, it has to do with the making of the cement, you know, and the, the energy intensive processes required to fire, to make cement, to, to fire up the kiln, to do the whole, you know, uh, chemical reaction uh, in cement itself. That is what makes cement uh, so emissive. It's not the concrete, it's the cement, right? And then there's the, obviously the transportation. It's up, that's uh, fairly minimal in, in comparison to the energy required to heat it up and do that, do the, the making itself, just as one material. And then there's the how long you, you have it in the ground for, like how long does it last, right? And I think durability and, uh, and life cycle are things that we really begin need to think about differently, like how long we're building things to last for because that would certainly help make the case for using highly emissive things if they're going to be there for, you know, for good or maintained and not just thrown away. I think so much of our contemporary construction, again, is like designed on some 60 year life cycle, which is really unfortunate. There's a movement here in the UK, which is, I mean, it's great to see about basically just against building, you know, like, or against demolition more so, you know, you ought not demolish any building uh, unless it's the kind of last resort. Uh, yeah, resort. last season we talked to Zero Waste Scotland about what they're doing there. And exactly. they're pretty progressive on these things. And in the absence of demolition is a really important feature for them and and reuse of existing buildings. 100%. So, mm -hmm. you know, and design your building. If you're doing a new building, design it that it could be reused easily or that, you know, you're, you're putting materials on it that are not going to just you know, disintegrate in 15 years. I stood with Les Stetchison at the demolition of the public safety building in downtown Winnipeg because he had designed it so many years before and he was no. crushed not to just to see it demolished, but of all the embedded carbon in the building. He said to me, why don't they reuse the building? And he was the one who referenced zero waste Scotland. He said, look at what Scotland is doing on this. Good. Well, the, the demolition of that building was a was criminal. Mm. I mean, what what more what more do you want to say? We demolishing a building in a place like Winnipeg to me is just bizarre. You've been quoted as saying building a concrete basement is irresponsible. It is. It's Why? A, uh, because I mean, the basements is when I did the study of my own cottage. You know, did a crawl space foundation uh, for a cottage that. It's a space we don't use. It was 60% of the total projects embodied carbon was for the space we don't use, right? If I were to do that project again, I would have, you know, I would have done like piles, helical piles, I would have done something. It would not be a cast in place concrete basement. I think that Canadians have this like cultural, just understanding that you must have a basement in your house. And if you really understood that that basement and your new construction is the equivalent of like you and your entire family's carbon footprint for probably 30 years, you would probably think twice about having one. They, that crawl space in that cottage is 92 years of me driving on this earth equivalent. It's, it's not the basement, it's that they're all reinforced concrete. And uh, it's funny, having grown up with one, you know, I assumed everybody had one. And it was only when I moved to Ireland when I was 19, I'm like, where's your basement? They're like, what are you talking about? I, I kind of joke that in somewhere in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, there's, you know, must have a basement. It's, it's utter bullshit. There's spaces we should not be building anymore. That's my humble opinion. What needs to be done to move us and the building industry and the architecture industry away from the seduction of concrete? There's two answers to that. You know, one is obviously there's some hope that the industry is going to figure out how to make a lower carbon concrete and 
it'll happen. I think the time frame, you know, we probably don't have enough time for that to actually happen globally. But it, it's funny when you think, when you look back in architectural history, I'd say the probably the most influential thing, or if you could go back and do things differently, would be Maison Domino and the whole Cabrusian, you know, kind of like Slav and Piloti. That moment changed architecture. And what architecture does that mean, education. though, Kelly? Oh, Maison Domino, it's a, it's a project by Le Corbusier, which when the kind of early, say, of experimentation with reinforced concrete was happening, right? And then I think it's in the teens or 20s. I think that moment, it moved architecture away from everything it had been doing for centuries. The, the invention of reinforced concrete and the invention of the air conditioner are probably the two things that, that had the biggest impact on architecture, and I would argue for the worse, you know, in, in hindsight, because what it did, it, it freed up, you know, it took us away from stone, for instance. And we're talking about basements all the time. People always say, well, like, what would we do? What do you mean we can't have concrete basements? What would we do? And, and I'll cite, I'm like, well, do you think like the Royal York Hotel in downtown Toronto has a concrete foundation? No, it's got stone. You know, all the houses in, in Wolseley that I renovated, like in Winnipeg, they all have stone foundations. I wouldn't be surprised if the legislature is built on a stone stone. Foundation. Well, the legislation is all Tyndall stone, right? It's amazing. There that whole go. campus there is Tyndall stone. Yeah. But I was talking so, to a young engineer the other day and I was talking about, because I was inspired by your lecture that, that happened uh, back in the spring. And I was mm. thinking about this. So I said to him, well, uh, why can't we build basements with stone? And he said, building codes won't allow it. Well, this is it. If you can imagine when I, the engineers that, that uh, we had on our team, when I kind of first said this project we did in Rwanda, the most revolutionary thing we did was do stone foundations. And this isn't a seismic, you know, part of the world too. So uh, they're like, well, you know, we're never taught this, you know, it's not part of my education. And so if you think about structural engineering, you know, how it would have been taught 120 years ago, you know, that would have been fundamental part of the education, right? And then, you know, reinforced concrete's come along and it's basically dominated structural engineering education. Like that's how they're taught how to, how to design. And then, you know, codes are amended accordingly. The fact that you couldn't do a stone foundation in contemporary building code tells you no one is educated in any more to push back. But two, there's also, I think, larger forces at play. You have got extremely large, you know, industrial uh, corporate interests that help shape code. The same corporate interests that help shape building code around, you know, packing your house with more insulation, uh, of certain problematic provenance, uh, the same building codes that, you know, lead towards a whole bunch of HVAC equipment in, in our buildings, you know, codes illustrate how law and interests evolve over time. If we just went back and thought about how our grand, our grandparents and great grandparents built and looked at it, I think we, we, we stand to learn a lot about what the future of architecture ought to look like. What do you call that? Material regionalism, yes? Yeah. We have lots of limestone in Manitoba, which could be a, what is, has been a great material for building in a variety of different ways. But in Rwanda, you were building with what kind of regional materialism? Yeah, good question. So, you know, the like vernacular architecture of the world around, the buildings are heavy, so you don't want to take them from too far away. Um, I live in London. Everything's made out of brick, you know, there's a lot of clay here. There's a lot of clay in Manitoba. In Rwanda, there's also a lot of clay and a lot of stone. So um, we use quite a, quite a bit of like brick of compressed earth blocks. We were working hard to, to find uh, sustainable so uh, sources of wood for, for structures. But, you know, the kind of 
you know, the fundamental pieces of, of like materials of architecture for centuries and centuries are earth and wood, you know, and stone. And if you're building out of earth, wood and stone, and it's not coming from too far away, you're probably, you're, you're off to a good start. You built many things out of regional materials in Rwanda as you were constructing schools, your design of an amazing hospital in Rwanda. Would you tell us a bit more about what you did there, particularly to eliminate the need for air conditioning? Working in Rwanda was liberating because it's, you know, it's like the, the perfect climate. It's, it's at the equator. It's at about 2,500 feet. So it's basically 16 to 25 degrees year round with a bit of fluctuation, but it never gets that hot. It never gets that cool. Um, when, you, when you look at the history of, our, of architecture in the tropics, you know, there's a big, big push in the 60s and 70s uh, to really think about tropical architecture and passive systems. And it was looking back at those. I mean, when joining Mass and our, our first project, we we're working in parts of the country that there was no electricity, you know, there's no grid, right? So it would be irresponsible to pack a building full of equipment that needs electricity. And it's really backed, you know, kind of led us back to first principles. Like how do you create ventilation and award, how to design for, you know, infection control, something now that everybody's very aware of, right? Um, there's, you know, there are airborne infections before COVID, that's for sure. TB, you know, being a big one. So it's it's back to first principles of orienting your building to wind and sun and putting windows in places that can ventilate, you know, having the building breathe for itself, looking at your depth of plan. And I, I always kind of, uh, you know, talking to people who know him, I, I keep going back to Leon Fedenu and what he taught me, you know, an undergrad, that kind of 70s movement in architecture of, of natural systems again. And I, I always kind of lament, like, whatever happened to critical regionalism? Like, whatever, whatever happened to the moment in our education when we were concerned about how we could make buildings breathe for themselves? Because it's possible everywhere, right? Again, what did a house in Winnipeg look like, you know, before the advent of central heating? Probably a good place to start. But so to kind of answer your question, in Rwanda, we, we you know, we had the benefit of, of having that constraint, frankly. I think the constraints were liberating. No power makes you really design. No electrical power, say, for instance, and and making sure your building can breathe for itself so the people in it don't get sick or, you know, come to it. And now those hospitals are the, you know, are serving as the kind of COVID headquarters for the country, which is, you know, incredibly proud to have been part of that. Every choice you make has a labor implication. And when you understand that, it's incredibly empowering, right? Um, you could be choosing labor like in Rwanda where, hey, we want to use that stone because it's from a quarry, you know, a kilometer away from the site as opposed to some other stones. So we're going to take the this construction budget and really put it into the local economy and, and connect the people of this community to that building. Or, you know, we can import some stone from Egypt. It's a pretty simple decision to make. And and the more and more you think about how to do that locally, the more money that you're you're taking and putting into a community, you know, in parts of that country that were, you know, underserved and and in need of work. So it's, it's an obvious choice to make, right? When you're constrained, and I think that the advantage also Rwanda has is has an 18% import tax, which is great because it makes importing things more difficult and more expensive. So it makes you look for what's around you and be more resourceful. Uh, with the things that are there. And that, that's where we really, I think, have been most innovative uh, as a company there is finding, you know, opportunities locally that, that were not immediately evident and not certainly, certainly nothing you'd find in a catalog, right? You needed to go and do your homework and meet the people and, and work with them, them and their materials and, and think about how, 
you know, what they're doing could fit into what you were doing and not the other way around. I think in hindsight, coming back to Canada, you know, we're just kind of catalog pickers. I really want that window, right? And not really understanding what that means. And like, you know, I think it wouldn't be too hard to pick a few buildings and uh, say downtown Winnipeg, and you, you could pick a window and you could probably not guarantee that anybody knew where it came from or whose hands it passed through and, you know, did it incorporate slavery or child, you know, labor at any point along its supply chain. You know, odds are it probably, you know, there's a good chance it might have, where if you're more connected to the whole supply chain, you could, you could probably sleep easier at night. So many projects, and you mentioned a little bit of this earlier, list themselves as LEED certified for sustainability, yeah. but you say sustainability has failed us. Why do you say that? I think that the, the idea of sustainability is, my, is the problem for me, that we are choosing just to sustain ourselves as opposed to being like moving in a positive direction because it, it you know, the kind of meaning of the word is just kind of like, status quo, right? I always say like, if you just, if you called your marriage sustainable, you're probably not in a good situation, right? And and I don't think we should be thinking about our, you know, our built environment that way either. I think we need to be radically better than than what we're doing. I think that there's a kind of, there's a, a mode of practice around the word too. There's certainly as I've kind of been educated in it and, and practiced in it, it brings, I think, along with it, a kind of a box tickingness to it of like, well, to be sustainable, we need to do X, Y, and Z and, you know, have 10 bike park, you know, have this many bike parking spaces and we have a sustainable project. And again, I think the big blind spot and a lot of how we've been thinking about it is we've been thinking about building operations largely. That's certainly been what's defined sustainability in my education, not the full picture of a building. The word to me is problematic because of what it represents and the kind of um, modes of practice um, that it represents. That's why I think in my teaching now, I've been motivated to go back and teach is to try to figure out how do we move beyond this word? What is the right language for education and and architecture? We're in a moment of crisis here, and we have been now for a while, yet we've been practicing sustainability. So these things to me seem uh, at conflict with each other. The city of Vancouver set embodied carbon reduction targets back in 2019. What's that actually mean in practice for them? I mean, this is the most inspiring thing that's happened in Canada, I would say, in my mind, uh, certainly in the last decade, and and the inspiration for the studio I'm teaching at University of Toronto right now. They obviously had the foresight and the political leadership to start looking at this issue, um, and what the implications are is is kind of direct, right? I think what they said is, hey, those targets are 40%. They're not quite half. They're 40% of the 2018 uh, baseline. So the first thing they did is like 40% of what, you know, or what are we doing right now? So they went around and canvassed a large collection of projects to establish a benchmark to to go against that kind of half of what, right? You have to know what you're doing uh, to start. You need to start by knowing what you're doing to to improve it upon and and measure it. And then setting that bench line against it is to say, you, hey, you know, you builder, you developer, if you want to be in business, you know, at the end of this decade, you got to do what you're doing right now for 40% less. And it's the absolute right way to go about doing this because it's going to force everybody to innovate. Everybody's going to look at what they're doing and like find where they're going to make savings. Right. So what's that mean in in practice? What do they change? For for instance, they're going to probably going to have a lot lot less basement space, right. Um, As as a start, I think that'll, that'll be an easy, an easy save. They're going to look at their structural systems. It's going to, 
probably going to push more buildings towards mass timber more quickly, whether or not that's, you know, truly sustainable or not. It's going to, I think, probably look at how and where materials are manufactured more. You know, I think, uh, you know, steel's not necessarily bad, but I'd say steel that's fired in like, you know, parts of the world that are coal dependent grids versus parts of the world that are, you know, more renewable dependent grids, you know, you're going to, hopefully it'll push material selection towards more sustainable grids. It's going to make people more than anything. It's going to, it's going to force everybody in that city to understand this issue. And it's going to create demand for innovation. Like I, I expect that architecture in Vancouver will be the most innovative architecture in Canada very quickly um, because of this. What data do you use to determine a building's carbon footprint? Because I know that you have some very deeply analytical methods to help people to understand carbon footprint. Yeah. You know, there's a whole kind of growing body of, of knowledge around this. And the main thing is just understanding like whole life carbon of a material, like uh, kind of product to, you know, cradle to grave of a, of a material or, um, you know, the product stage, like what's it take to get it from cradle to gate, how you develop a, that footprint. If you can you know, imagine your, you know, your milk or my oat milk, it'll tell you how many kilograms of CO2 equivalent, you know, your, your glass of oat milk is. And that's all done through a kind of in, environmental product declaration, EPD, which is to say, yeah, you know, this glass or my glasses, you know, have, have gone through a kind of a, a measurement of the entire manufacturing process uh, and have done an audit of, of the, basically the carbon equivalent required to, to make this, right? And uh, that assessment can be applied to any product, um, you know, and I never, I look at everything like through that lens now, like, where did that come from? Oh, this plastic, that's metal, that's stainless steel, this plastic tip, you know, um, they all have footprints and there's a whole industry behind, you know, kind of developing those numbers. And that's pretty simple. Like I have one glass or I've got 10 of them and I know the footprint of it. And therefore you kind of, you take the quantities of, of the thing you're measuring and you multiply it by the EPDs and it helps you establish, you know, your carbon footprint. Again, the same way that you do it for your meal, you know. It's pretty straightforward. Our urban preoccupation with cars and parking cars, yes. and particularly in the creation of parking garages beneath buildings, has been a preoccupation of yours as well. And you've done some analysis on that. I, this is where I think it's interesting for architects and planners. Like when you realize I had, this was came out of the research that we did at the University of Toronto last year, inspired by Vancouver, I wanted to say, hey, city of Toronto, Vancouver's doing this over here. Uh, you should do this too. Let's start the conversation by doing a benchmarking study and, and was fortunate to get 10 projects from across the city from different architects and different developers and just start looking at them and, and figuring out not just what's your what's the average embodied carbon per square meter, but where is it? Like what's driving it, right? And I think that the underground parking was probably the most interesting thing that came out of it. A lot of Canadian jurisdictions and all North American jurisdictions have floor area ratios on their zoning guidelines, which means, you know, if you want to, you project developer, you want to build a, you know, building on this piece of land, obviously economically, you're trying to get as many units onto that property as possible to sell the units, right? The city will also uh, have a floor area ratio maximum and that is only governed by a usable floor area above grade. And on top of that FAR, so that'll say you can only go so high and so big. 
but you could go as deep as you want. Like legally, you could go to the Earth's core, right? And then on top of that, they would have uh, minimum parking requirements. So, you know, uh, up until recently, most of, say, the city of Toronto was for every residential unit, you need to provide one and a half parking spaces because we're, you know, aside from us having uh, our right to a basement, we have our right to a parking spot. From a cost perspective, this from a developer is like below grade parking is very expensive. Like it's like $30,000 a spot. Uh, and going basements are, are very expensive, but you don't want to occupy the floor area above grade with cars. So you put it all below grade because it's basically unregulated space, right? So it's naturally, that's what happens. You get these underground parkades. So the net result of a kind of, of this is you get very deep basements filled with cars and the projects that we looked at, you know, 30 to 40 to 50% of a project's total emissions were related to the underground parkade for housing. So you have to ask yourself from an emissions perspective, like, is this the behavior of a species concerned with its survival? But this points us toward the issue of private ownership and use of private cars. And if we move toward a more public transportation system that's accessible, then we may need less underground parking because people are not going to be bringing their cars to where they're going, right? Totally, totally. My one policy recommendation out of this, pretty simple, would be like, tell the developer uh, you can have zero parking on your site or half of what you would have had. And you can give us the savings that you're going to incur as a result give us 80% of it or something. You pocket 20, the other 80 goes to the city to invest in like public transit. Something simple like that. The developer is going to be like, great, I've, I've saved money. The city is going to be like, great, we now have more money to spend on public transportation infrastructure, right? In a city like Toronto, that would make a ton of sense. A, a city like Winnipeg, though, it's a little more difficult because we're starting from a position of, of sprawl, of like total sprawl. How do you decarbonize the Midwest? How do you decarbonize cities like Winnipeg, the kind of post-war you know, sprawl? It is, it is a fascinating, complex question. I'm curious as to what kind of projects you're working on now with, say, white architecture. Yeah. So with white, I'm working on a new children's hospital in Cambridge in the UK, um, which is very exciting. Uh, I'm also working, kind of looking at the, the whole company's embodied carbon uh, say workflow and, and methodology um, and how, because now through REBA, through the, the Institute of British Architects, they're going to make it a kind of uh, mandatory part. Uh, you need to report on your embodied carbon. And if you want to be up for awards, for instance, it's going to be quite, it's going to be mainstreamed here very quickly. And a friend of mine is even working to make it part of the building code. Sooner than later in this country, it's going to be regular part of practice and uh, helping to, to drive emissions down in the UK. And then on top of white, so I'm, I'm back at the University of Toronto again this fall and doing a similar studio. But uh, this year, the case studies I'm going to look at are all mass timber projects as a counterpoint to all the reinforced concrete to kind of ask the question like, you know, is mass timber, what is it relative, say, reinforced concrete and through this lens? And uh, what are the impacts of mass timber? Uh, we know Canada's forests, for instance, right now are net emitters. So, you know, to think that wood is the answer right now isn't necessarily the case because as an industry, Canadian forestry is in fact not sustainable. And uh, I think architects, you know, and engineers really need to come to terms with that and, and begin. I think it's a broader cultural dialogue, hopefully in Canada, that we begin to look at 
our own country a bit differently. I find, I think as a Canadian who's lived abroad for quite some time now, I think, um, you know, the reality is that we are amongst the world's most polluting individuals. We are right there with Bahrain and, and the Middle East, you know, so per capita, Canada is not doing well. There are a number of reasons for that, but I think at the heart of it on an individual level, one is we, we lack political will. Uh, and also I think we, we lack cultural awareness. We have an entitlement to space and a kind of like lots of space. And with that comes a very large carbon diet. And I think it's high time that, that we kind of look at ourselves and, and, uh, and see ourselves for the, for the ugly reality that we are and, and try to change our behaviors quickly because um, we need to. What are you hoping will come out of COP26 in Glasgow in November? I mean, hopefully uh, global political alignment. <laughs> I, I mean, that's our, this is kind of our hope. I mean, there's a lot riding, I think, on this next one politically. Thankfully, the American uh, people coming from the States are going to help, I would hope. But I, it's, it's complicated. I'm, I, ha- I have hope. I remain optimistic about what comes out of this. And, and hopefully there are commitments that are actually more, when I say realistic, I mean, like actually what needs to happen. Because what's required of us as a species right now uh, is not what we've been doing for the last, you know, 20 years. Certainly, it's, it's something much, much different. And it's not a step change. It's like an overnight, it's radical. It's completely radical, right? You know, one thing for anybody who's listening to this is like, just think in your own life, like, you know, what, what could you do? Again, that kind of question of half, like I, I say to my parents who, you know, live in the large house that we grew up in at St. James, like, hey, dad, you know, if I, if I told you, you need to half your utilities next year, like, what do you do, right? You half your footprint, like, are you going to commute to work half as much, right? Like, or are you going to, I mean, I guess, in a kind of normal setting, what would you do as an individual to have your footprint? And then, you know, as architects, landscape architects, our decision-making at work every day, we have such a disproportionate impact in our decision-making. And so the next building you design, how are you going to, how are you going to pretend you practice in Vancouver and say, I got to figure out where I'm going to 20% today out of this building. And if it means making it smaller or convincing your client not to demolish it or getting rid of your basement, these are the things I think we need to start talking about. And then I think as educators, I would say every faculty, you know, teaching, teaching design at this point, like this has to be the core question, I think, in, in our pedagogy. And I'm hoping to organize a, a, a symposium at U of T this year, just focused on that decarbonizing the curriculum. And this goes across, I think, all, all parts of, of education. This is about how we teach history and theory. It's how we teach our building science and ultimately how we judge, you know, design. It needs to be fundamentally at the center of, of what we're doing. I mean, I gave a lecture, obviously, at U of M last year, and I'm, uh, I've been in touch with a few people. I'd like to come and do a workshop around this and help. I'm here to evangelize. And if anybody's willing to listen, you know, we all need to be working together on this. And, and this is, it's only through collaboration, I think, and through knowledge sharing that we can really make the change required of us. Thanks so much for taking the time. It's very precious that you uh, set aside time for Prairie Design Lab. Cheers, Terry. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Kelly Alvarez-Doran spoke to us from London, UK. Kelly is an associate director of the Swedish firm White Architecture. Prairie Design Lab is a podcast all about architecture and innovative design from a prairie perspective. Our podcast is created by the students, faculty, and graduates of the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg and by generous collaborators around the world, such as Kelly Alvarez-Doran. 
You can find us on Spotify and Apple and Google Podcasts. You can also listen to us on UMFM Radio in Winnipeg at 101.5 FM, Wednesday mornings at 11.30. Special thanks today to Jason Chan, who's an instructor in the Faculty of Architecture and a very active supporter of Prairie Design Lab. I'm Terry McLeod. Talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.